This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Athio Maria Maritziti discusses 13 ways of looking at the death penalty. Then PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley calls in from the AWP conference and book fair. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. What do you have in the nonfiction side of things, Mark? Topping the list of debuts at number three. Three is a cookbook. Uh, not surprised. This is uh, Trisha Yearwood, uh, and it's called Trisha's Table. Uh, my feel-good favorites for a balanced life. People know her as the Grammy-winning country singer. She's done cookbooks before, uh, but this one she she turns her attention to eating healthily, uh, even for a southerner. And you know, I'm not surprised that it's on the bestseller list. Her books always are. So she's got you know low-calorie, healthful takes on cinnamon orange rolls or a slow-cooker recipe for Georgia pulled pork or even a uh, key lime cheesecake with raspberry sauce. We say in the review, her relatable personality and down-to-earth culinary sensibility make for positive encouragement, such as she won't force you to rid your pantry of gluten, but she will gently advise you to try tofu in place of cheese in your lasagna. So this is um, a helpful book at number three. And uh, again, we're not surprised that it's up there. Right. Uh, The next one is at number 15 in defense of a liberal education. This is Fareed Zakaria. He's the uh, host of CNN, his own CNN show, and also contributor, uh, contributing editor to Atlantic and the Washington Post. And here uh, he argues for a renewed commitment to the world's most valuable educational tradition. And that's at number 15. So obviously people, parents, I think, are uh, interested in this. Uh, People in general. uh, Absolutely. And at number 22 is a little favorite of mine, Scott Simon. I just have always listened to him on NPR's Weekend Edition on Saturday. And here he has a book called Unforgettable, A Son, A Mother, and the Lessons of a Lifetime. And um, this is basically remembering his mother, who raised him after uh, after his father died when he was 16. So uh, it was, it's just a really sweet, tender book. We say he takes his quirky, devoted, gracious mother on her own terms, and his work shimmers as a touching tribute. So it's just a very sweet book. That sounds lovely. And those are the three that we have on the top 25. All right. Well, there's a lot more movement happening on the fiction side of things. We have a new number three, six, seven, fourteen, fifteen. 14, uh, you know, lot, lots of big books wow. coming out in April. Great. Um, at number three, we have The Shadows by J.R. Ward. This is the 13th book in the Black Dagger Brotherhood urban fantasy series. Um, these books have a little bit of everything. There's you know, fighting, sex, the supernatural, um, some exciting stuff. Stuff. And uh, you know, I, I could go into the plot summary, but it probably wouldn't make sense to you if you haven't read the other 12 books. So it's it's a very intricate, well-developed world. But uh, Ward has tons and tons of fans, obviously, and they're happy to uh, push this up to number three on the hardcover bestseller list. Uh, nearly 20,000 copies sold in its first week. Very impressive. 
Um, moving down a little bit at number six is The Patriot Threat by Steve Barry. Um, this is the 10th thriller featuring mm-hmm. Cotton Malone. And uh, we say it has a very unusual premise. It's about a historical flaw in the U.S. income tax code that could possibly destroy the country's economy. So, uh, you know, not not the usual topic for, for a thriller, <laughs> getting getting really into the IRS yes, machinations there. Just um, in time for tax season. Just in just time, time for tax week. season, indeed. Yeah, it's, it's very timely. Know, right? <laughs> you, you can read this thriller instead of facing the horror of your own right. <laughs> exactly. taxes. Right. But, uh, you know, just in case you wanted more action, right. um, there's also uh, you know, some, some North Korean political intrigue going on there. Uh, and uh, we say that fans of political conspiracy fiction will find plenty to like in this series installment. Right. Uh, at number seven is At the Water's Edge by Sarah Gruen. This is a real change of pace. Obviously, she's well known for writing Water for Elephants. Mm-hmm. Um, this is her fifth novel, and uh, it's a historical set in 1945 about a, a socialite from Philadelphia, her husband and his best friend, who go to Loch Ness to seek proof of the legendary Mm. Loch Ness monster. Uh, And what they get instead is a lot of interpersonal drama. Uh, We say that a slow start gives way to mystery upon mystery, building to a gripping climax. Uh, And always, uh, Gruen's just Mm. wonderful at creating beautiful settings, very sympathetic characters. Uh, So this is, it's a standalone novel. So even people who don't know her work uh, might find this a great one to pick up. And it's got a gorgeous, gorgeous cover. Yeah. Uh, that real historical feel. Um, moving down a little bit at number 14, we're back to the science fiction and fantasy side of things. This time it's The Skull Throne by Peter V. Brett. This is, I believe, his first time appearing on the the bestseller list with the fourth book in his Demon Cycle series. Right. So you you pretty much get two trajectories with these epic series. One is that uh, they start out strong and then kind of taper off. Right. And then one is that they start out small and then they get big. And right. This is this is the latter. Uh, yeah, the the first three novels they all came very close together, and uh, this one uh, really takes things beyond the usual epic fantasy trilogy. Uh, style and uh, moves in into a, a bigger, longer running series. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, again, a lot of a lot of interpersonal drama mixed with very high stakes. You know, the fate of the world, right? Um, which in this case is a is a fantastical world. And this also has a great cover uh, of a, a woman with a dagger who looks like she is about to mess you up. Right. Yeah, she so, does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if that's your sort of thing, um, then uh, you might find this uh, very appealing. And finally, I just wanted to note something a little bit further down the list at number 22 is The Harder They Come by T.C. Boyle, uh, a name that perennially shows up on the, yeah, the bestseller right. list, uh, very well known. And uh, we say that this hypnotic narrative probes the complexities of heroism, violence, power, and resistance. Uh, so it's a, a, you know, a story about South American drug cartels, uh, a combination of, of kind of military and paramilitary and mm-hmm. uh, civilian tensions and uh, a manhunt for uh, you know, a killer who you know, may or may not be findable at all. So uh, we say the novel is written with both clarity and compassion, and each of the novel's characters inhabits a rich and convincing private world. So I I, I feel like um, it would be 
erroneous to class this with the the thrillers that are more about the political machinations. This mm. one is definitely more on the character-driven mm. side, right? Uh, and uh, it's pretty deep and pretty intense. Fantastic. Yes, and whenever T.C. Boyle has something out, it's on the bestseller list. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a uh, it's pretty pretty reliable. And right. so for us, it's at number twenty-two uh, with uh, about twenty-nine hundred copies sold. Oh. Sounds fun. Yeah, strong good start. Okay, good. Excellent. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Mario Marizzitti comes to our office and tells us why we should reconsider the death penalty. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Kathy Airway, the author of The Food of Taiwan, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Mario Marzitti in the office. His new book is 13 Ways of Looking at the Death Penalty. Hello, Mario. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's a big opportunity. So, your book, 13 Ways of Looking at the Death Penalty, tell us about how the idea of the book came about, and also maybe about the format, like why the 13 Ways? Well, uh, it's many years that from Italy and internationally uh, I've been working on the issue of the death penalty. And, uh, and I could see that uh, uh, all the movement in the 90s practically did not exist as a movement, but it was pretty split. split. Uh, those for a moratorium, those for abolition thinking that those for in favor of a moratorium were like enemies almost. And uh, at the same time, there were specialists about execution specialist about Texas, specialist about uh, single issues, and so on. And at the same time, everyone was convinced that it's his own situation was completely different from any other parts of the world, that America had nothing to do with the rest of the world, and so on. And at the end of the day, I found myself that uh, the real need was to have uh, many different angles to look at the death penalty, because there is a big gray area and uh, we must take seriously also the, the opinion, into account the opinion of those who back the use of the death penalty. But many times uh, when you speak with these people, then they do not know many things and they may change their mind if they know th- those things. Uh, and just to give you an, an example, uh, we spoke with millions of people just to write, sign petitions. And these millions of people at the beginning were maybe in favor, and then they were not in favor. So I thought that I have to give a gift to America and trying to give a, a small tool, a small book to think about. You'd say a small book. I mean, it's, it's physically very small. You, you expect a discussion about such a weighty topic to be something kind of big and heavy like a textbook. This is, this is tiny. It, almost, it, it looks like a gift book. Was, was that a very deliberate decision? Well, the decision was to, to do something readable. So not something that it is for, uh, only for activists uh, or to preach to the preachers but something that, was, that can help everyone to understand that if you pay attention to the issues of the death penalty, you may meet a lot of humanity, of death, uh, some incredible experiences that you never have in your everyday life. So it's not just a book about the death penalty. It's also a book about what counts in life and how a personal life can change. And uh, the worst thing would have been to have a heavy thing 
that would select people, making people think that this is just for specialists. Instead, this is a book about life, about our life. And well, so as far as uh, accessibility of the book, I think it's your second chapter where it's a list of numbers uh, where, where you you have a number and the significance. Um, how did that come about? Tell us about that chapter and, and what can we glean from those numbers? Well, um, sometimes we do not pay attention uh, to how we are related to the rest of the world. And these numbers give us the proportion. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we think of ourselves just as individuals or just as isolated people in the world, but we are not isolated. So if you know that, uh, per esempio in Italian. <laughs> for example. Uh, for instance, <laughs> uh, that uh, the amount, the percentage of people uh, in jail in America is much higher than in Iran. I think that this is good food for thought. Mm -hmm. I think that if you know that 51 is the number of people that were executed just for stealing a horse, mm. well, this is, makes you think, well, was it necessary? Or how, how is change in the world? Or uh, the fact that 76% of executions in the U.S. in 2010 took place in the South three out of four, uh, and so on. Uh, or that uh, mm, the cost of remodeling the building in preparation for the execution is $165,351. Well, it's interesting too. So I think that these numbers, each number says one thing, and, uh, and that uh, uh, the, the percentage of women to men executed in the American colonies in the 17th century was 9 to 20. Uh, that's it. So I think that in one, in few pages, uh, you don't have to work too much, but you can learn much. So it was uh, uh, very nice to, to write this chapter. Uh, one of the numbers that you mentioned is 33% uh, of Boston residents would support the death penalty if Zsokar Sarnev were convicted of the Boston Marathon bombing. And uh, that conviction came just this week. And now there's a lot of debate over execution. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? 33%? Well, it's a, it's a good low rate. Yeah, uh, I think it's incredibly interesting to know that even in this case, uh, much more than uh, the majority of the Bostonians would be against mm -hmm. uh, another death. And I think that it, is, uh, it would be a good choice, no death penalty, because I think that uh, it is completely uh, useless to add another death to so much sorrow. It does not give back any life to the people who lost their life and does not give back the limbs to the people who lost an arm or a foot. Or, and, uh, and the strange person who survived among the attackers, uh, who is 19, was probably strongly influenced by his older brother and uh, in an ideology in which uh, terror and death uh, in, that, in those moments could have a meaning. But this culture of death is exactly 
uh, what must be defeated. So I think that society should resist. The only thing that these uh, two young men wanted, that was death. So if uh, the death penalty was uh, applied to this Chechen young man, uh, this would, give, would, would somehow say that he was right. Uh, because he wanted to spread the culture of death. So talk to us about your concept of life row, which is a, a phrase I love. Uh, life row is, uh, is the row where many people lived many, many years, uh, people sentenced to death. And, uh, and the death row uh, is a place where mm, the impression I had when I visited uh, death row my, my first time and other times was that uh, the whole system uh, tends to dehumanize whoever has been sentenced to death so that when the moment of the execution arrives, that uh, death is not killing a human being, but just getting rid of a former human being, and uh, as if you were uh, crushing an insect or getting rid of... Uh, a kangaroo, so uh, uh, of a sick part of of yourself. Uh, but uh, so this is why inside that row there are so many abuses mm. that uh, tend to put pressure on the people, on the individual, to to think themselves that they are garbage. So some violent people are encouraged to be more violent, to be crushed, destroyed, even before. Uh, the execution. But many, many, instead of succumbing to this, uh, resist to the system, uh, starting to defeat the system, just being different. So we could talk about it later in case, but for instance, Nick Harris, that spent 22 years on you know, uh, Pennsylvania death row, who actually uh, read more than 6,000 books mm. inside. And when I, I, I tell the story in the book, when I uh, met him and I told him, uh, I'm sorry for what happened to you. It's something very normal to say. And he answered, why? Uh, I'm perfect. I'm alive. And I was a jerk. I was an asshole. I learned a lot about myself. So then... Uh, Inside that row, another friend I had, uh, uh, he was then dismissed because he was innocent. Also, this person was innocent. But uh, spent some years, and he was accused to have killed his own wife. While he was um, uh, wounded, he himself was wounded during the attack, of the, during the robbery at home. But for some years, he was sentenced as a person who had killed his own wife, and you can imagine, he had two children mm -hmm. that were not sure if dad had killed mom. So he was killed many times in these things, but he was innocent. At the end, he was out, and fortunately, he has a big love with his children. But uh, he told me that there was a man who did not receive uh, adequate therapy on death row, and he had diabetes. So every time he was meeting him, from time to time, he had a piece of uh, body missing 
let's say, a foot uh, amputee because of the diabetes. And that man was saying, don't worry, I'm escaping this place one piece at a time. Wow. And this irony, this capability of understanding the system and being different from the system, to understand even the guards that sometimes are uh, very good, sometimes are sympathetic, sometimes are just scared, sometimes just work, sometimes are sadistic. There are all the kind of. To understand the whole thing uh, gives me uh, the feeling that inside there is an enormous amount of uh, humanity that is thrown out. And uh, I think that death row is like the desert uh, in the Bible. It's a place for temptation and a place f and a challenging place. So it's impossible to remain the same person. And many become incredibly sophisticated, refined human beings, which is a disaster uh, if when you kill them at the end of this beautiful pilgrimage where they understand what counts in life. So you, you write that, you know, that most Western countries have done away with the death penalty. And you've traveled in the United States quite a bit for research for this, your own travels. Uh, and at the beginning of the show, you, you had said that this book was a gift to American, to American uh, 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 readers. What can you tell us about what you have seen in your travels in this, con in this country and the resistance that many Americans have in, in ending the death penalty here? Well, I must tell you first that uh, as an Italian, as a European uh, you, you must imagine that I'm just full of love for America. Uh, not just myths, mm -hmm. but a, f a deep love. We grew up um, full of gratitude after the Second World War and soon and freedom and so many examples and so many common things. And, uh, and also Europe, you, as you said, uh, give up, gave up uh, the death penalty after the Second World War. And uh, the reason is not that Europeans were better than Americans, but that Europeans had tasted so much death. Uh, there was the war of the 30 years, the war of the 100 years, the First World War, the Second World War, the Shoah, the extermination of the gypsies, and so on. And so new Europe, uh, new democracies in Europe, uh, started to think we must give up death, giving death, and if possible, even war. Uh, and once we discovered this, and it was a pilgrimage also in Europe when uh, France abolished the death penalty 30 years ago, not, not so long ago, it was not easy even for France. Uh, but then we think our friends, our brothers and sisters, Americans, we must give this gift back because they helped us. And so... Uh, what I saw in America is, first, of course, there is not just one America. And there, is, there are not only Americans, but any individual is a person. And, but, uh, of course, uh, it's strong, the feeling for revenge as a, 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 as a form of justice, uh, retribution as part of justice, more than rehabilitation. And uh, sometimes... Uh, social problems can find a shortcut uh, in trying to be, let's say, tough on crime, 
through prison. And so the fact that in America there are more than two million people in jail it's abnormous uh, to uh, European, but I think it's uh, objectively, it's an incredible question mark uh, about the public education system, about if there are alternatives, social programs and whatever. And so then, uh, but I, we also, and I also found an, in, an incredible amount of people who were committed to, to improve life of the people. So uh, I, I find uh, Americans, uh, always somehow as clean people uh, who would like to do the right things and sometimes do not know why they don't do the right things. So um, in the South, uh, I had the feeling, the, the feeling in Texas that it was a beautiful country, but I was resisting to say to myself that I was happy to be there because I could not stay uh, in a restaurant when uh, all the people around had in their own pocket a gun. Mm. For me, it was shocking. Uh, and then, so uh, the culture of weapons. Uh, and, then, uh, and then I discovered that uh, the death penalty is completely unjust in the US. It's unjust because uh, if you execute one out of 100 people who commit a murder, what kind of justice is? What is the criteria? Or if it is to give back something to the victims of the families and the other 99 families do not receive anything back. Is it true that, for instance, I discovered that about the death penalty, every legend becomes a normal truth. Uh, I think that psychologists uh, have, uh, have written thousands of books uh, uh, clarifying that to heal from a problem, it's a process. In the death penalty case, uh, they sell the, as truth the fact that when the person is executing, executed, in that very moment, the healing process becomes perfect for the family that lost some beloved ones, which is false. And it freezes the family members of the victims for years in, in the promise that they will heal on that very moment of the revenge and they freeze them in the very moment that is the worst moment of their own life when they lost the most beloved ones and then they became crazy of sorrow. And so they, they prevent them from healing. But Psychologists do not say anything about this. So I discovered that uh, when you speak with people and help people to think about it, people change, can change. So uh, they can listen to the fact that uh, uh, you add only one death to death. Uh, they can understand the fact that uh, if you, our listeners, could be afraid of uh, tough punishment if we do something simple. So uh, if in Singapore you put chewing gum uh, on under the table, uh, it's a crime, okay? And then it's so misproportionate, the, crime, the, the penalty, that probably I will not put right. the chewing gum right. under the table. But uh, a person that 
lives in violence or a drug addict, alcoholic, or who suffered a cycle of violence in his own life, or a gang member that uses normally death, is not scared by death. You, our listeners, may be scared by death. But the death penalty is not... It's like uh, when you read on a package of uh, cigarettes, these <laughs> cigarettes kill. <laughs> Nobody. Uh, we read that, but many smoke. So there is no deterrent if, uh, deterrency effect. So I think that uh, uh, I started to see how if I explain to them that the world is changing and that the world loves America, America can find a reason to, to decide, to start thinking that can be different. And so, for instance, the, the, the argument that America will never be affected by what happens outside America, because we, America is so mature as a democracy, so proud of itself and so on, and so different as history, is uh, an argument that is totally inconsistent. Uh, the concrete example is about the death penalty. All the good people that were activists uh, against the death penalty were thinking, okay, you are Europeans, mm, but here is different. Mm -hmm. And practically everyone was thinking, well, they are Californians, they are not Texans, Texas is different. Oh, they are New Yorkers, we are from the South, and so on. So, actually, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States officially stated that it, this is not true because when in 2004 I think they twice said that it is against the Constitution to execute mentally disabled and to execute juveniles at the time of the crime they were contradicting another sentence of the Supreme Court that was saying that it was okay and to justify that in the sentence, they wrote, because of the change in the international standard of decency. So officially, America says that the, the change in the world, the international standard of decency that change, are a matter that is fully interests America, affects America. So this is why... So I found many more reasons to, to be in love with America and to interact with Americans and to cooperate in the abolition, for instance, uh, in the re in repealing process in states like New Mexico or New Jersey or other American states. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Maria Maruzzizzi, who's the author of 13 Ways of Looking at the Death Penalty, who's telling us some incredible things about activism within the U.S. and how it's influenced 
by uh, things that happen in the rest of the world. So uh, you're very involved with the community of Sant'Egidio. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that particular um, activism in Europe and how uh, activists in the U.S. might learn from it? Thank you for this question because it touches a lot of my life. Uh, I was a high school student. At the end, I was entering my university uh, when uh, the community of Sant'Egidio started. It was 68, 1970. And you must imagine a group of students who read the gospel, uh, school poor children in the poorest outskirts in shacks, uh, Bidonville, of the outskirts of Rome, and from there, uh, just being friends with this uh, marginalized world and trying to be passion and compassion. Nothing. And a small group, a family, let's say, community of Sant'Egidio. Uh, so how to change the world, but not one by one, but together. And uh, how not just to say what is good and what is right, but let's try to leave it first. And this has become, uh, over the years, uh, a large movement of uh, people that from Rome, uh, after five years, took the name, strange name Sant'Egidio, Saint E-G-I-D-I-O, which is the name of a small former monastery in Trastevere, a sort of Greenwich village of ancient Rome. It's 2,000 years uh, old Greenwich village of New York and uh, full of restaurants, theaters, but it's also the first place where Christianity started because it, it was the, the place of the harbor. So you must imagine St. Paul and St. Peter uh, arriving in Rome in the Jewish neighborhood because there were people working at the harbor. So and that, in that place, uh, we found this small church. We, at the beginning, we occupied it as quarters, and then we reopened a small church, and in the evening, there was an evening prayer, every evening. That was the only church open in the evening at night yeah, in Rome. Starting from there, Sant'Egidio has become, uh, uh, let's say, uh, something for everyone to change the world by using non-violent means uh, in 73 countries in the world, always with local people, mm. Now, some 60,000 people, all volunteers, nobody paid. So uh, a large international, not just NGO, so it's a group, families of Christians active in ecumenism, interfaith dialogue uh, with the immigrants, with the homeless, with the elderly, try to find human, a human way for the elderly to live in urban societies in the West. And step by step, in the south of the world, let's say, the largest program against AIDS, providing therapy in sub-Saharan Africa, free of charge, uh, called DREAM, Drug Resource Enhancement, and Against AIDS and Malnutrition is the acronym. It's in 10 countries, about 1 million people involved in some way, almost 200,000 people in therapy, and uh, always collecting money because we do not have money. And or a program like Bravo, Birth Registration for All versus Oblivion, that is uh, uh, how to register the invisible children, those who are born and never register. Mm. And this is a problem that in the world affects about 50 million people a year. So, and this is 
one of the causes are also of civil wars because you have ethnic groups that do not exist in their own country or if a child disappears is sold is trafficked uh, nobody knows that this is happening so uh, just to give you an example and then Sant'Egidio is a way of being uh, friends of everyone and everyone dignity so friends of the poor and uh, in the catholic church but uh, open to to dialogue uh, and in this way we were involved also in peacemaking uh, so being friend with one poor then you become friend with a whole country of poor and the poorest country is the country that has war and this is how in the 90s early 90s we broke the peace accord in mozambique after 16 years of civil war and then I took place uh, in the peace negotiation for Burundi with Mandela. So we stopped the Hutus and Tutsis uh, mm -hmm. genocide. And uh, recently in Mindanao, a crisis that lasted for more, 40 years, more than 40 years, uh, we put at the table radical Islamist, uh, Islamists and the government. And it's the beginning of an agreement after more than 40 years. On this road, we started to fight for human life also inside death rows and to, to be part and to promote international initiatives to stop the death penalty. But everything started from one letter sent by uh, an American, African-American, young person, Dominic Green, that was on Texas death row. This letter arrived to some Italian newspapers. A friend of mine started to be a pen pal and from that moment on, we started to be involved in the death penalty issue. But Sant'Egidio is how to be friends of the poor. That's it. And every relationship is always personal. So um, how can American activists build on this example? Well, I think uh, that many uh, American uh, activists uh, started to, to work together with us, uh, let's say... I have many friends, I can think of uh, Journey of Hope, uh, Bill Pelkey and many others that uh, it's, a, it's a group that of victims' families that crosses America and uh, speaks with the people and as relatives of the victims, they uh, tell how it is possible to give up revenge and be healed or Martin Vinci's families for uh, human rights, uh, people like uh, Representative Rennie Cushing in New Hampshire that fought uh, a lot uh, to repeal the death penalty in New Hampshire, but uh, the final vote was even. So mm -hmm. then uh, it was not possible last year to repeal it, but they went just even in New Hampshire. And uh, Or I have... Uh, my friends in Texas, like uh, David Edward or Rick Halperin, uh, they are the founders uh, of the Texas Coalition Against the Death Penalty. They, they, they taught me, they taught me so many things because uh, they have always been minorities uh, like Don Quixote working and against the, uh, the windmills. Mm -hmm. But uh, now I think that there is a different feeling. So with them, I could enjoy an experience from 2007 to now, uh, almost one abolition 
the abolition of the death penalty in one state per year, almost. So it was not happening since the 70s. Mm. So many things are changing. And, uh, and then also I became so f- close friend with Sister Helen Prejean, uh, the, the, the real nun of dead mal walking, right. and uh, a great woman uh, full of irony, uh, a fighter, and uh, it's a uh, she. She used to to use a lot uh, the fax machine before emails, and we were swapping uh, faxes. And she used to sketch something on the on the pieces of paper. And then once I did the same, and then I said, uh, well, uh, I was flying very much, and she was calling me Flying Mario, and, and, uh, and then uh, at a certain point I, I was writing a simple thing. Uh, Helen, you and me are... Uh, many, of, many people look at us as if we were um, heroes of uh, human rights, but actually we do it just because we we think that's the only right thing to do and uh, we do not feel special but you you and i uh, it was by uh, around christmas you and i are like uh, the the cow and the donkey at the nativity so we something special happens uh, around us we give a small contribution. Probably, if we were not there, these things could not happen. Jesus could not could freeze, mm. but we are just the donkey and uh, and the cow. And then uh, I said, "You, I'm the flying donkey, and you are the holy cow." <laughs> and then she answered, "Well, it's not so nice to say to a nun that you are a, a holy cow, so you are a flying ass." <laughs> <laughs> so this is the what my American friends. We've been talking with Mario Maratiti, and you can find his book, 13 Ways of Looking at the Death Penalty, in stores right now. Mario, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley joins us from AWP, the Association of Writers and Writing Programs Conference, so stay tuned. I'm Kevin Sessoms, author of I Left It on the Mountain, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley is calling in from AWP. That's the Association of Writers and Writing Programs Conference and Book Fair. Hi, Alex. Hello from Minneapolis. So how's Minneapolis doing? Is it spring there? This is my first time in the city, so it looks like spring in new york it's it's been raining and the sun comes out sometimes <laughs> sounds about right so association of writers and writing programs conference and book fair is is quite a mouthful what's awp like it's like a half-size bea for anyone who's familiar with book expo america um a lot of the the, the attendees here are uh, involved in MFA programs, um, university programs, lit, lit journals. Um, there's tons of small presses um, and a lot of panels devoted to pedagogy and, you know, getting in the publishing industry and 
it's a, it's, it's a lot of interesting stuff and it's a big jumble, a well-organized jumble. <laughs> I, I would hope so. What's it like to walk around the space? What kind of space is it in? Um, uh, one thing that a few people have commented on so far is that is it the, the big convention center in, in downtown Minneapolis and the room, it's just a big open uh, like airplane hangar like space. Um, so compared to previous years that I've attended, it's a very different feel. Um, I wasn't at Seattle last year, so I can't comment on that, but in, in Boston, it was at the um, Heinz Convention Center. And that's a big room, but there's like a lot of little like nooks and crannies. The year before that, it was in Chicago in a hotel conference center, and there were lots of little rooms. Here, it's just like one big open floor plan with, you know, gigantically vaulted ceilings and just the light and the openness. Um, and people are just it, find it oddly more disorienting. Um, than in when it's like in a weird sort of Byzantine convention center. But the feel is, it's, it feels pretty laid back still, um, still kind of early. Um, you know, this being Thursday, there's a lot of off-site readings tonight, um, and that's when things really start to pick up is in the afternoon and evening when the off-site readings go off. So that's kind of the vibe right now. It's a little, it's pretty, it's pretty laid back, and I don't know if that's a Minneapolis thing or just that's happens to be what it's like this year yeah or or as you said you know right at the beginning of the conference and and this is the the first day of a three-day conference yeah there there's a few things um on wednesday and then it really gets going on thursday a lot of you know more a lot more panels and and readings um on friday and then saturday it starts to close down there's some readings and they tend to open, I think they're doing it again this year, um, they open the book fair to the general public, I think for a, a, maybe a small fee or something. Um, so it's kind of, in the way that in previous years, I think DEA has done, you know, they do like a Saturday thing. Now there's BookCon, which is totally different, but, you know, there's like an open to the public thing on, on Saturday for the book fair, which is uh, a big draw, obviously. So you're so so the AWP, the Association of Writers and Writing Programs. Uh, what, what are the who are who are the booths? Are they uh, uh, MFA programs? Are they publishers? Uh, if so, what kind? And what who who are we talking around? And what's the I guess the whole purpose of the AWP uh, for for the conference? Yeah. I should say. It's um, there are a lot of MFA programs, and that's a big reason why. PW wanted to be there this year is to make more connections with the MFA programs, um, get students involved and more aware of, you know, what PW provides in terms of news and reviews and get them familiar with the landscape of what the publishing world is. Because I know when I did my MFA, it wasn't always obvious. You know, a lot of people are there in an MFA program to get qualified and look for teaching jobs. And as a lot of people know now, that is a really fraught system with adjuncting and part-time teaching and just um, a lot of people trying to do the same thing. It's a, a strange economy um, and a very precarious one. But a lot of a lot of people come and scope out what's going on with the different programs. Um, and most programs have their own literary journals. And there's a lot of networking between the literary journals and people who want to get their 
their fiction or their nonfiction or their poetry out um, into into that world. And it's a you know how most people get started by submitting to the journals, and then um, a lot of maybe you know get a, a their first book or first couple of books or chat books um, picked up by one of the small presses that are are at AWP. So that's the, uh, another huge element. Um, one of the big things this year is Minneapolis has a very vibrant art scene, and a couple of the uh, really well known sort of medium small presses um there's gray wolf there's coffee house there's milkweed um they're all here and they're kind of playing a, a hosting role um there was a great reading today at noon that uh that gray wolf put on um and there's just more of those that are going to be happening for the next couple of days um but it's it's kind of a showcase for the city and its art scene and then yeah for, for, you know, the, the more general landscape is really the small press world and the MFA programs and the, the, yeah, the people looking to familiarize themselves with that. So people are going who are thinking of doing an MFA and who kind of want to shop around. Is that the idea? I mean, would someone fly in from another city just to go to AWP and look at the programs exhibiting there? I don't think, I don't think necessarily. I mean, I know I wouldn't have been aware of that when I was looking, but I think a lot of students are more savvy about MFAs now and mm. what they can and can't get out of it. And um, for students, they have a discount. So for local people who can, you know, make the trip, um, it's probably very beneficial to them and just to see what's going on. Uh, a lot of the other things is for people who are already sort of embedded in the, in the larger community, it's a way to... Um, just see who else is getting involved with things. And then, you know, for the NSA programs, you, you spend a couple of years in this program. And if you're involved in the, like to the literary magazine, um, that or journal that they put out, you go to AWP yeah, under the auspices of, of that journal or, or your program. And then you meet all these new people that are doing similar things. And a lot of, I think it, a lot of fruitful, work comes out of that later. I know the first time I went was in 2011 in Washington, D.C. Um, and I went under you know, Lit, which is the New School's MFA journal. And it you know, introduced a whole new world for me and a lot of my friends in that program to you know, small presses, journals, and things like that to get our work out into the wider world. So that sounds like a really exciting networking opportunity. Yeah, it, it's very overwhelming. Uh, I mean, you know from the romance conventions and sci-fi conventions and that sort of thing. It can be huge. Um, it's it's huge. And, and so and, many people. You know, once people get in and, and, and sort of nerves settle after the first like, day or so, then it's kind of just this weird party. <laughs> and like there's there's like some food and there's booze and people are already drinking. I'm sure. It's that kind of <laughs> but it's so different when you go knowing people versus when you go the first time and you don't really know anyone and you're sitting there in panels watching people say all these smart things thinking, how could I ever get from the side of the audience side to the panelist side? And then a few years later, you're like, oh, man, they want me to do another panel. <laughs> yeah, there, there, it, at, at least in, in my world, there's a lot of uh, fairly quick advancement from the the reader side to the writer or professional side. Does that, does that happen in the, the MFA world? 
I think I think it's pretty similar. Um, I haven't been into any of the panels yet. I've been into a couple of readings so far, but uh, just sitting at our booth, a, a number of people came over this morning. And I was sitting with Brian Kinney from our, our marketing department, mm-hmm. and people people came over and uh, Craig Teicher, who uh, was a former poetry reviews editor for us and does our digital work. Um, he had done a panel this morning on, you know, how do you get work outside of the academia system? And people had come over and were, were just saying what a what a great talk it was in general and how good a job that Craig had done. And Craig is pretty well known in, in this world and has been involved in a while. Um, and his wife is uh, Brenda Shaughnessy, another poet, is very well known. Um, and she's doing a reading this afternoon that I'm going to go go attend. Um, so yeah, there is that sort of, you, you get involved, you see what's going on, and then suddenly you find yourself in the mix sort of professionally instead of just as an observer. So are there any particular events coming up of, over the, the rest of the schedule that you're looking forward to? Like like you said, it's early, but I'm sure there's some stuff you're anticipating. Yeah. Um, if I if I can get there tomorrow morning, there's an ethics of of reviewing panel. It's at 9 a.m., so we'll see how that works out. Tonight is all parties. <laughs> Good luck. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but things like that, um, I not being an academic, I'm less interested in the, the pedagogy panels, but that's the majority of, of what's happening. So that's a, that's a really big deal. Um, and it's for fiction, for nonfiction, for poetry, for um, it's all over the place. Um, but a lot of the readings tonight is just all parties and readings, and, and tomorrow is the same thing. Like you said, that once you've gone to one of these things before, you see all these people that maybe you haven't seen since the previous year, um, and so there's a lot of people, you know, just getting here and saying hi and catching up with old friends who, you know, live halfway across the country or whatever the case may be. And uh, and and you should make sure to observe the rule that we have at science fiction conventions, the the five two one rule, which is uh, get five hours of sleep, eat two meals, take one shower every day. <laughs> it's, uh, so far, so good. These are easy things to lose sight of when you when you're when you're drinking all night and uh, you know ha- hanging out with all of these people you know all day. It's uh, it, it can be very distracting. Yeah. I think you said you you hadn't eaten lunch until pretty late today. Yeah, I, I was just running on coffee and fumes, basically, and you know now it's now it's getting into the real part of the program, and everyone can start sort of misbehaving now that they've done something professionally. But it's good; a lot of people have come by the PW table, and you know we've been giving out uh, issues of our our magazine. We we have our the, the MFA update issue here. Mm, um, we're trying to get people that way get people interested and people seem really receptive to it that's great it's great for us and i think it's great for them and you had mentioned that our colleague craig teicher uh had a panel this morning on on the kinds of jobs writers can get outside of academia what did he suggest what was the tone what was the feeling like of it? was it hopeful well i i wasn't at um at the panel but people came over and, and really appreciated his input i mean craig right. Besides doing our digital operations, he he does teach, um, right. and and he writes outside. And there's a lot, there's a lot of you know, a lot of people go into the MFA world to try to get into academia in one way or another. Teach 
And because it's such a crowded field and, you know, um, tenuous field as far as like getting solid, stable work, um, a lot of people look outside. I mean, I ended up at Publishers Weekly, which has been great for me. Um, and a lot of people end up at other publishing houses or they start their own. They, um, and that's another thing that, that AWP is good for, for people who are just starting out a new project, um, to get, you know, to get into that world. Um, there's lots of options available and I don't think people are always aware that when you have that kind of degree, that there are options besides academia. Mm -hmm. Um, and and there are there are lots of other things and so AWP is is proof of that given all the the, the, the presses and um, and journals and things like that that go on there um, people do all kinds of uh, weird stuff and that's that's a, you know it's inspiring to see so many people doing so many interesting things. Well, it sounds great. Well, I hope you enjoy the rest of your time there, Alex. Thanks so much for calling in. Thank you. Always great to have you on the show. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, my name is Joshua Davis. I'm the author of Spare Parts, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another scintillating author interview, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 